So tonight I'm going to talk about romantic love and kind of a Buddhist perspective on romantic love as it is Valentine's Day. Um, I'll begin by saying that, um, of course, originally this was St. Valentine's Day. It's actually named for an individual, uh, an individual considered a saint by the, the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, his name was Valentine or Valentinus in Latin. He was a, a priest in the third century, which was a time when the Christian community was being um, brutally persecuted. And he, you know, was serving these Christians who were persecuted by the Romans. Um, at some point, he went to Rome. Him, he was himself arrested, brutally tortured, and killed. And so he's, he's honored as a martyr in the Catholic Church. And so this... He was the day he died was was February fourteenth, and usually, if a feast if a if a saint dies a martyr's death, whatever their death date is becomes their feast day. It's thought that that's the day that they entered heaven. That sort of thing. Um, the connection between his name and what has now become a Valentine's Day and the the whole idea of romantic love. Um, is quite arbitrary, really. Romantic love is something that evolved almost a millennium after this guy. Um, and there's all kinds of quaint stories about, you know, he you know, he married young Christian couples who were in love, that sort of thing. There's not really a whole lot of credence for that. A lot of that is sort of backfilling a story. Um, but it does kind of amuse me that in some sense, when you're saying, be my Valentine, you're kind of saying, like, be my Roman priest and martyr. Like, it, it, this is a weird kind of thing. Anyway, so his, his name is associated with the day for more or less arbitrary reasons. Romantic love, as we know it, uh, originated in the Middle Ages, originated in the, the 12th and 13th century in the, in the troubadour culture, uh, mostly in France. And it's, you know, it's so much a, a part and parcel of our world now, we think like, well, what was there before then, you know? And so, first of all, it's it's important to press to presence that monogamy has been around forever. In fact, monogamy um, is much, much older than the human species. You know, many species of mammals, and in fact, many species of birds are monogamous. Uh, bird, some species of birds are the most monogamous creatures on Earth. Um, and so... Throughout, throughout human history, you know, humans have been monogamous. Um, most marriages have been arranged. Most marriages through human history have been arranged by, by tribes, by families, you know, this sort of thing. Sometimes at various periods of history, there were matchmakers involved. Um, but it was never thought to be a decision that I myself would make all by myself, you know. And of course, the idea of an arranged marriage is just so antithetical to our way of thinking, you know, but, but of course, you know, the arranged marriage, and again, you have to remember in most human history, people were getting married at the age of like 15 or 16, you know, this sort of thing. Um, and so these young people would get married, they'd start having sex, you know, oxytocin would take over. And so, you know, in all likelihood, in many cases, there was lots of warmth and affection just because of the chemical magic of the, all that. Um, you know, to, so not to say that there was no love 
in these arranged marriages. Many times there there probably was love, you know, not in every case, but um, you know, it it's certainly not our our own. Certainly not the story that we now have. You know, and it's actually a very interesting question if you look at the the general hap, you know, sort of average level of happiness that couples had in arranged marriages before romantic love ever existed versus the <laughs> the happiness that people have now that they, they get to choose their marriage state, you know, it you know, debatable which you know, who would come out better, you know. The ideal of romantic love, it it centered on a lot of just these marvelous heroic stories, these couples like Tristan and Isolde, Lancelot and and Ygrine, uh, Lancelot and Guinevere. Um, and it was it was really, you know, unlike any previous conception of love, it was this idea that, you know, Two people, their eyes would meet, they'd recognize in each other, you know, as it were, the other half of their soul. Um, and there'd be this tremendous fulfillment in connecting with this one person. And there was, you know, a tremendous amount of poetry that was associated with this. Um, music, you know, many of the, the late Renaissance songs were devoted to this sort of thing. Um, so it was kind of this whole culture that grew up around it. Um, there's a famous instance in Dante's Inferno because, of course, the, the, the love that, you know, this, you know, me choosing my own love, um, the church didn't like this at all. And, and often people were still in this historical period married by arranged marriages. And so if I fell in love with somebody, it probably would be someone who was already married, you know, that sort of thing. So the, the church was none too happy with the, the love culture. Um, and there's a famous instance in the Inferno. Um, he gets down to the circle, the, the first circle of hell, which is the circle of the lustful. And the lustful are being blown around. Their, their souls are blown around like, like leaves in wind. And he sees two souls clinging to each other. And, and they pause for a minute and he hears, hears their story. And it's, it's the famous story of Francesca de Rimini and, and her lover Paolo. Um, who were, Paolo was her brother-in-law, and they fell in love, and then then her husband murdered them both, you know. Um, and Dante hears this story, and he just, he falls over in a swoon, like he just faints on the spot, because he's just so overcome with the emotion that they, they followed this love, which was so beautiful, but it landed them in hell, you know, this kind of thing. It really was the first time, incidentally, that there was um, really such an emphasis on individual choice. This idea that I myself would n- would have information about something really important in my life. You know, this arose in a culture where the church would tell you everything. Like the church would tell you, you know, you need to believe this, you need to do this. And, you know, and if you question it, you're going to hell, you know, this sort of thing. So it really was, uh, the, you might say, the, the beginning of individualism of any kind. Um, and Joseph Campbell actually talks about this, how it really, there's this core of this individualist idea that 
began in the love movement, but then played out in the scientific revolution, in the rights of man, eventually the whole nexus of ideas that led to our Declaration of Independence and Constitution. Um, it, it's actually a major, uh, a major current in the history of ideas. But we'll fast forward to America in 2021, where the love idea is now just the standard. It's the expectation for everyone. So it's not just heroic souls who are having this experience. It's everyone supposed to have this experience. You know, this, um, you know, two people meet, their eyes meet, and you, you meet your soulmate, and then nothing but uninterrupted bliss follows, you know. Um, now, you take this, soul, this story and combine it with a culture where people don't really have a long attention span, a lot of people live in their heads. A lot of people are uncomfortable with vulnerability. A lot of people don't have very good boundaries. And it's really kind of a train wreck, you know, where, where it winds up playing out. Um, you know, half of marriages end in divorce. And, and so those are the marriages that just end in divorce. That's not counting the people who stay married, who are miserable and some kind of stalemate, but they're staying together for whatever reason. It also doesn't count all the people who, you know, started out with, I love you, we're going to spend our lives together, but never even got to marriage, you know, broke up an engagement or broke up, you know, you know, there's no, uh, there's no uh, central mechanism of tracking heartbreaks, you know. Um but it's a cult. It, it's an expectation that sets up a lot of people for a lot of heartbreak. Um, and as Buddhism would point out, just the nature of the expectation and the nature of the weighty expectations themselves are a problem. Um, and it's funny because there is there is a chemical ride known as falling in love. And presumably this chemical ride was something that people had, you know, even in ancient times, even before there was romantic love, they would have the, they'd go on the ride of falling in love, which is a wonderful ride. You know, it's a, you project all kinds of wonderful things onto the other person and they project stuff onto you and your senses are wide open and the, the bird songs are clearer, the flowers are brighter, and the whole world sparkles. And it's lovely for a little while. And then reality sets in. Um, and of course, it's the nature of these projections. Now, Jung talked about um, the man carries the animus, and the woman carries the, the anima, and the woman carries the animus, or the man you know, especially uh, a man who hasn't done a whole lot of work, his inner feminine is all wrapped up in the anima, which gets projected. Like, you know, I'm not going to take care of my own feminine. You're going to take care of it for me, you know, and, and similarly. Um, and of course, in that, there's usually unresolved mommy issues, unresolved daddy issues, you know, all that stuff. Um, Now, of course, I'm, I'm painting kind of a bleak picture of this, but of course, what happens sometimes with people who are people of integrity, people of, of more responsibility, you know, the, the, the falling in love juices wear off and then, then the hard work begins. And then there's, 
communication and compromise, um, takes a tremendous amount of forgiveness, uh, patience, this sort of thing. Um, really any, any couple that's happy to be with each other that have been together for decades will tell you it's taken a lot of work to make that relationship work. Um, now I will say everything that is challenging, everything that is problematic and just downright dangerous about relationship um, actually makes it almost ideal as a as a field for spiritual exploration, you know. Um, and especially if two people together are embarking on, we're going to take this on as a, a spiritual undertaking, um, it's tremendously rich. Um, you know, there's no other relationship in which no other, you know, kind of interaction in my life in which the depth of my own vulnerability would be um, plumbed so so fully, as in romantic relationship. Um, you know, everything about you know core shame, control issues, all that stuff. Um, romance will bring it all up. Um, And it really, it's, it's a, can be a teacher in so many ways. Um, I mean, really to love, to truly love, is to want the best for somebody, you know, to allow them to be fully who they are, you know. And in that allowing, like if I'm really going to let my lover tr- be who she is, um, that means I have to get rid of all kinds of controlling of, you know, all the tendency that wants, wants me to make her be what I want, you know. And so it's a tremendous discipline, you know. Uh, Race Mimenikin has a wonderful turn of phrase. He, he talks about, you know, the immature lover expects his lover to be a one-stop shop for getting all his needs met, you know, this sort of thing. Um, And really, in a spiritual sense, relationship is a wonderful place to practice the six paramitas. The six paramitas in Buddhism, generosity, discipline, patience, enthusiasm, concentration, and insight. Um, generosity. Generosity is so funny. We, in, our, in our very capitalist-driven culture, we think of generosity as about like giving something of monetary value, you know. Um, in friendships and especially in relationship, the, the most important kinds of generosity are things like, you know, letting somebody, you know, speak their whole perspective, uh, giving somebody the benefit of the doubt, you know, holding space for the best in another person when that other person can't see it themselves, you know, all that sort of thing. Um, there's so many kinds of generosity that are you know, that are, that are so much more magnanimous than, than anything that we might give of monetary value. Um, and the discipline that really helps in, in romance is, is mindfulness and be, just being practicing presence and mindfulness, um, 
a lot of the the staleness that happens between people after they've been for a while is that they they start taking each other for granted just out of habit, you know, um, and it doesn't feel good to be taken for granted, and it doesn't feel good to take somebody for granted if they're special to you, you know, um, but it takes tremendous discipline to be present, um, to be riding the cutting edge of what is evolving and what is changing both in myself and in the other person, you know. Yeah, patience and forgiveness are essential for any kind of long-term relationship. Um, Yeah, and enthusiasm also. It always fascinates me. Enthusiasm is one of the parameters. Um, To have have a genuine, long-lasting enthusiasm for what excites the other person, for what is, you know... For, for everything that is beneficial, truly beneficial to the other person. You know, it is, it can be such a privilege to witness the growth of another human being, such a privilege simply to hold space for them as they move through a transformative process. And it's also a privilege as we're moving through a transformative process for someone to hold space for us, you know. And so there's some there's ultimately something quite beautiful there. Um, Jung talks about how the meeting of anima and animus um, constellates the archetype of wholeness. And that's sort of that 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 feeds into the magic of the the falling in love experience. It also feeds into a lot of wedding imagery. A lot of wedding imagery is about is about constellating the archetype of wholeness. Um, ultimately, the archetype of wholeness, as much as we like to you know project it out into some magical thing out there, um, reflects back to ourself. It. You might say it's the the archetypal image of what it is to be a whole person. Um, And you could say, in some sense, you know, the greatest gift we could give our lover is is our own healing and our own journey toward wholeness. Really, Really the greatest gift that we give all the people we care about in our life is is our own journey toward wholeness. So at this point, I'll share the quote sheet. First with the Zoomies. And then for folks in the room. So the lead one from Rumi, which 
not really even specifically about romantic love, but it's just such a wonderful quote. Let yourself be silently drawn by the stronger pull of what you really love. You know, and I, I love all the, the, just the vulnerability and allowing that's in that quote. Moliere said, love is a great master. It teaches us to be what we never were. Felix Adler said, love is the expansion of two natures in such a fashion that each includes the other, each is enriched by the other. Carl Jung talked about, you are the slave of what you need in your soul. The most masculine man needs woman, and he is consequently their slave. Become a woman yourself and you will be saved from slavery to the woman. Acceptance of femininity leads to completion. The same is valid for the woman who accepts her masculinity. And of course, he was writing at a time when, it, when you know, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, more when, you know, men were men and women were women. I think we're, we're a little more gender fluid now and, you know, take a little more for granted that men should cultivate their inner feminine, women should cultivate their inner masculine, like that that's more in the popular culture. Um, but still, there, there's something deep there. Einstein said quite simply, love is a better teacher than duty. Eleanor Roosevelt said, the giving of love is an education in itself. F. Scott Fitzgerald said, there are all kinds of love in this world, but never the same love twice. You know, and there is something so unique about when any two people come together, the way that those two people create love between them. Anton de Saint-Exupéry, the author of The Little Prince, said, love does not consist in gazing at each other, but looking together in the same direction. Thomas Merton said, the beginning of love is to let those we love be perfectly themselves and not to twist them to fit our own image. Otherwise, we love only the reflection of ourselves we find in them. Robert Johnson said, It is almost always the case that whatever has wounded you will also be instrumental in your healing. James Baldwin said, Love takes off the masks that we fear we cannot live without and know we cannot live within. Wow. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh, who is no longer with us, said, to love, first of all, is to accept ourselves as we actually are. And really, you know, the healthiest way, the, the best way to find any healthy outside love is to love ourselves. Bruce Lee said, quite simply, I'm not in this world to live up to your expectations, and you're not in this world to live up to mine. Very clear. Jack Cornfield said, in the end, we discover that to love and let go can be the same thing. Lev Grossman said, this was the thing about the world. It wasn't that things were harder than you thought they were going to be. It was that they were hard in ways you didn't expect. That's a really good, really good explanation of what a romantic relationship is. Hard in ways that you didn't expect. Naval Rakikant said, just wait. Just be you and wait for the people who want that, which is wonderful dating advice. Um, the rest of the quotes are actually from this book, 
Rock the Boat. So I brought a copy of this book, Rock the Boat by Race Momenikin. Um, I I read this book a couple months ago. I was deeply impressed with this book. I would call this book, hands down, the best book I had ever read about romantic relationship. And so just a few quotes from this book. The conflicts you have with your mate aren't just about different backgrounds or needs or communication styles or approach to life. They're about each of you becoming the person you most want to be. That's the opportunity of relationship. Another quote, the paradox of intimacy is the more important something becomes to you, the less willing you may be to show all of you to them because it terrifies your lizard brain. Life is full of peril, but peril is not always what we imagine it to be. We think that peril holds us back. When we hurt, we want to feel safer and more secure in order to be able to take a risk. But life doesn't operate that way. In fact, it's just the opposite. Security and safety come after taking a risk, not before. Many of us have very little tolerance of anxiousness, ambiguity, and uncertainty. Instead, we naturally gravitate toward what is familiar to us, even if it's painful, because we're desperately afraid of what we don't know and can't predict. It's a profound statement of the human condition there. We need to make, when we need to make important choices, there's always a potential for loss. This scares us and can make us want to fight, flee, or freeze. One common form of freezing is to refuse to choose. Refusing to choose is itself a choice. It's choosing to punk out, to try and flee from responsibility, to refuse to grow up. Integrity trumps protection. Integrity trumps survival. It even trumps relationship. Integrity puts everything on the line. It appears at the most difficult times because those are the times when everything is at stake. We think emotional nourishment comes from getting our needs met, but that's not how life works. Emotional nourishment comes from growing up. The quest for fulfilling our emotional needs can be endless. We get stuck on a hamster wheel chasing one form of fulfillment after another. People who build their lives around meeting their emotional needs tend to be anxious, fearful, and frustrated. In contrast, people who have accepted the clean pain of growing up have a relaxed readiness and an easy confidence about them. Their focus is not on acquiring fulfillment, but on being fully present. Because of that presence, whatever whatever happens has the potential to be emotionally nourishing. Choosing makes people vulnerable. It opens them to the possibility of making bad choices, of losing, of being rejected, or of ending up with nothing. It may feel safer to let someone else choose for them, so they choose not to choose, thinking they can't lose or be disappointed, but that's not how things play out. Eventually, they do feel disappointed. Choosing not to choose actually makes them more vulnerable, even though they think it will have the opposite effect. And finally, he said, growing up takes focus, energy, resilience, patience, and tolerance for uncertainty.